Haunted Nights, live with Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross. Good. We had so much fun today researching we psychopathic did. behavior, didn't we? It was, it was, <laughs> we did. I love. Oh, it was great, especially the religious mania. That was especially fun, and oh, I love planning fun. a new book. Yeah, we're planning two new books at the same time, so it's getting very confusing. But I really like it. How about you? <laughs> Occasionally, we transpose the stories and put the mm-hmm. wrong characters in the wrong book, but it only takes a little while for us to figure out. Oh. That's why they yeah. not <laughs> yeah. Yes, good day, busy day. Uh, tonight, we are, it's our YA night, so we're joined by our special young adult guest host, QL Pierce. Um, Q has a lot of accomplishments under her belt, and uh, I will name just a few of them. Um, she's the author of the hit series, Scary Stories for Sleepovers, Titan A.E., The Land Before Time, and over 150 other books for middle grade and young adult readers. Her work has won the Carter G. Woodson Gold Medal, the Moonbeam Children's Award, and many, many others. Her multi-award winning book, Red Bird Sings, received praise from Publishers Weekly, the School Library Journal, and the Library Media Connection. Um, That said, I'm going to turn it over to Q, who's going to introduce tonight's guest. Uh, Welcome aboard, Q. How are you? No, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm doing great. Um, we had a little earthquake this morning, so, you know, I'm energized. Um, <laughs> it's my great honor to uh, introduce our guest tonight, someone uh, that I have known and uh, admired for, for quite some time. Uh, Tracy Barrett has written more than 20 books for children and young adults. She's much too interested in way too many things to stick to one genre, so she's published nonfiction as well as historical fantasy, time travel, myths, fairy tale retellings, and contemporary realistic novels. She knows more about ancient Greece and Rome and the European Middle Ages than anyone really needs to know, and she can read lots of dead languages. Uh, she also used to jump out of airplanes. So, um, welcome, Tracy. Thank you, Q. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, now that that jumping out of airplanes thing, that really freaks me out. So, but we'll oh, talk did about it? that a little later. <laughs> too. Yes, All right, I let's do that. Into fun, so I don't know about <laughs> out. So, but you grew up mostly in New York State, and several of your neighbors were authors. What are some of your favorite childhood memories of living there? Well, uh, yes, it, it's a town close enough to New York City that that authors and artists can work in the city and then get out to the, the burbs at night and have uh, lawns and, and things like that. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, we had a lot of well-known authors there. Charlotte Zolotow and, and Max Zolotow lived there. Jean Fritz was a good friend of my mother's. Um, 
Ed Young lives there now. It, it was just a very literary kind of place, so it was interesting growing up and not really thinking that authors were anything unusual. I know a lot of people say that it never occurred to them that they could actually grow up to be an author, but for me it was just, you know, so-and-so drives the carpool and then she goes home and writes stories for the New Yorker. So it uh, uh-huh. it was it was kind of a natural part of my growing up, but I still didn't come to writing till much later. So I don't know how much good it did me to know all these authors when I was a kid. Well, um, on your list of favorite childhood books, you include the first half of The Once and Future King. Why just mm-hmm. the first half? Oh, well, then if you, if you read a little further and see books that I liked as a teenager, I have the second half. Um, it, oh, okay. It's waited. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is waited because I think that the first half was written really for children. I mean, they, a Disney cartoon was made out of the first of the four books, out of The Sword and the Stone. Uh-huh. And I think the rest of them would not have really appealed to Disney so much. There's a lot more uh, heaviness and a a lot of uh, gore and serious issues that I think Disney tended to avoid. I think a lot of those issues are addressed now in children's books, but they certainly weren't back in my youth that I know Uh of anyway. And uh, I think it's a, a change for the better. Did you, um, as a child, did you enjoy uh, scary stories or? Uh... You name it. Uh, I loved all <laughs> stories. Uh, I read above my age that, that I should have. You know, I, I was doing well in comprehension, so I think like a lot of kids, I read books that I wasn't quite ready for. And then when I got old enough for them, I thought, oh, I read that when I was a kid. I remember reading Jane Eyre quite young and enjoying it. But then when I went back to it in my teens, it was a whole different book. Um, but I, I was just curious about a lot of things, and mm-hmm. I read both fiction and nonfiction, mostly fiction. But I, I, scary stories, I think I got more of my fear off the TV. The, the late-night horror movies were more my speed for scary stuff. I think, in a way, they're a lot less real than a book. I think the book can scare you more because you're putting yourself mm-hmm. into it, whereas the movie, it's someone else. And it, it sure is scary to watch, to see the birds and the stupid people opening the door and getting pecked to death when you, <laughs> when you know they shouldn't. But it's, they're the ones getting pecked to death, and when you're reading, it's, it's you. So um, maybe, they, maybe, yeah, good. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe, it was, uh, maybe that was it. Maybe the scary books were too scary. Okay. Wow. Um, did did you have a favorite uh, film? You mentioned the birds. Was there one in particular that impressed you? Um, of, uh, well, films. Well, I uh, well, I, I did love Mary Poppins. It's, I know that's the opposite of being <laughs> scary, but that's I loved Mary scary. Poppins, and uh, I always loved Julie Andrews. And I, my mother loved Shirley Temple, and. Uh, would we we'd watch Shirley Temple when there were Shirley Temple movies on? And I think the saccharine stuff. I think I I saw through when even when I was a kid. But the dancing and all were just wonderful. I always loved musicals. Uh, I love music. I'm not very musical myself, but I love listening to music. And and uh, you know, TV was really limited when I was a kid. We had I think three local stations, and then. They didn't yeah. call public TV. It was educational TV, and I remember there was something on there about how to take a shower. And I mean, it was really <laughs> educational and not very interesting. And but then Julia Child would come on or whatever. 
But it was oh, uh, it was it was more limited. But we would go to go to movies a lot, and um, my family since they were unusual. My parents in that a lot of people who live close to New York City don't take advantage of it. But we were going into the city all the time, and seeing plays and movies and ballet and seeing uh, actors before they became famous and. Uh, companies, ballet companies before they were famous, and my parents would every few months. There was, I was, I have an older sister, older brother, and a younger sister, and we were, were only two and a half years apart total, the three of us, and we'd mm-hmm. sometimes get lost in the, that small crowd. And my parents would take just one kid to the city for a day and do whatever they wanted, and so I, I, I always wanted the ballet and a French restaurant. But we also, um, my brother would go to revival movie houses, and so I started doing that too. So uh, I was exposed to an awful lot of things when I was a kid, and it was it was great. Yeah, you seem to have such a wide range of interests. Um, and I also uh, noticed you have a BA in classics archaeology from Brown. Yes, I do. And it's yes, oh, we're getting M-A-N-A. to the nerdy part here. Medieval Italian literature from Berkeley. How about that, huh? <laughs> yeah, so, that's one of those useful degrees. Well, there's yeah. some obvious influences. I mean, the the uh, the books, uh, some of the earlier books that you wrote, the historical books and things like that. Mm-hmm. You can see the influence. But what influence? have those studies had in general on your career as a writer? Huge, huge. Um, uh, the the classics, it's classics archaeology. I, we, you could concentrate, they had Brown to call it a concentration, not a major, thank you very much. It was classics okay. Greek, <laughs> classics Latin, or classics archaeology, and which uh, classics archaeology is really art history. Um, okay. And the huge influence it had on my life was uh, it led me to spend my junior year studying in Rome and fell madly in love with Italy and uh, went back home after that and finished up my undergraduate degree. And I thought, what can I do with my life that will send me back to Italy a whole lot? And that's when (laughs) I decided to do grad school in Italian. And it has worked. I go there all the time. I'm going there next month. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, actually (laughs) March. Bologna, going to the going to the International Children's Book Fair in Bologna for uh, just a couple mm-hmm. days, and then my husband and I are going to a town nearby. We we like to just go to some small town and rent a house and rent a car and not really make plans till we get there. So that's what we're going to be doing. I have so never it, been to the book fair in Bologna. What what goes on there? I don't know. It's my first time. Um, oh, it's not okay. really. Yeah, it's not. I've always said I should I should be the one going there. I can talk to the people, but it's it's. Um, it's mostly for publishers where they exchange uh, uh, publication rights between from one country to another. They buy uh, the, the translation rights. And there's not really much for authors to do there, but I'm just curious to go there and check it out. Plus, Bologna mm-hmm. has what the Italians say is the best food in Italy. And if Italians say it's the best food, it is. So <laughs> no, I've got to go for that. I have actually been to Bologna, not to the to the fair, but... I agree with that 100%, and I still have that funny little paper chef thing that was stuck in my steak that I had there that night. It's up on my wow. bookshelf. But I, and now I've been a vegetarian for many years, so that was quite some time ago. So uh, <laughs> anyway, I I love the line in your bio that says you are much too interested in things to stick to one genre. Yeah. 
And yeah, well, you know, bit- they, they, tell, they tell authors you, you should brand yourself. You should, people should know that when they pick up a book by Tracy Barrett, they're going to find X, Y, and Z. And I guess maybe that would have been a wise career move, but I, I just... You know, I just get seduced away by something else. I love doing research. I mean, you don't get a, uh, a Ph.D. in medieval literature without loving to dig into dusty old books. <laughs> and you turn up such cool stuff. You find so such that, wonderful... Is that what, is that mm-hmm. what starts your books? Or do you, rather than character, do you start with like a story or a fact or... It usually I start with a question. My first, I had written nonfiction for several years because just because I thought I can write a dissertation on a medieval poet that you've never heard of. I can write about, you know, growing up in colonial America, which was one of my nonfiction books. But um, I was asked to do some entries in an encyclopedia called Women in World History. They wanted people to work on. they, they needed some more articles on medieval women. So I said, fine, I'll do Joan of Arc. And they said, taken. I said, okay, Eleanor of Aquitaine, <laughs> taken. And everybody I said was taken. So uh, I said, who's left? And they sent me this list of medieval women, and I hadn't heard of most of them. And I thought, wait, I'm a medievalist. I'm interested in women's history and women's literature. And I never heard of these people. And I started researching them, and they were so cool. And I wound up applying for and getting uh, a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities to study uh, medieval women who wrote about women. And you'd think, oh, that should take an afternoon. No, there's so much stuff. We see medieval women through the medieval men's eyes. And I'm not Uh saying they they were wrong, but I'm just saying it's different when you see what women say about women. And it was Uh fascinating. And that did lead to my first novel, Anna of Byzantium, because... Uh, that was one of the ones on the list they had to write about. And it was too far removed from my area of scholarship to really, I'd have had to do a whole lot more background on the Byzantine Empire before I could write a good article on her. So I didn't, but she intrigued me. And I went back and read up on her and I read her, the book that she wrote about her father and the first crusade. And um, it, I, it, she just fascinated me. So that's, that's where the first book came from. I decided I would just write like a an essay pretending I was Anna in her exile. She tried to kill her brother, so she was sent to exile. And uh-huh. I read I read it to my critique group, and they said, well, what happened next? And I said, I don't know. And if I hadn't had that critique group asking me every two weeks, what happened next? I don't know that I would have written the book. Uh-huh. But I did, and that was my first book. It's still my bestseller, my first novel, actually. Uh-huh. How, well, one of the books that I love is uh, it's, it's a fairy tale turned on its head, and that's the stepsister's tale. That's mm-hmm. from Harlequin, right? And oh my gosh, it got starred reviews from PW and Kirkus. And would you tell us a little bit about that book and what inspired it? Well, you know, that was another one where there was a question. I don't know why I was thinking about Cinderella, but uh, I was, and. I thought, you know, why does everyone believe her? She says that they treat her so badly. It sounds to me like every other blended family I've heard of where you get a bunch of teenagers in the same house, and of course they're going to squabble, and of course they're going to say, you make me do all the work, and the other one's mean, and they're ugly. And it just seems so logical that that, that and, but we take her word for it. What if we saw it from the other side? And so then I thought, what if you are a kind of plain girl, and with your kind of plain sister, and your mom marries this guy who brings home this stunningly beautiful girl, and you have to share everything with her, and 
and she's spoiled and won't do anything. So that's where it came from. And uh, it, it was really fun to explore that, to see what things I could take from the fairy tale and see them from the other side and, and, uh-huh. and, and explain certain behaviors. The only problem was I made her such a brat that by the time I got to the end, I thought, she shouldn't get a prince. Why does she get a prince? <laughs> and so I had to figure out my way around that. I, like, I also like making puzzles for myself that I have to lie awake at night and stare at the ceiling and say, why did I get myself uh-huh. into this? into this fix because it's so much fun figuring it out yeah the the prince was kind of you know privileged too you know well he turned out to be worse than she was so yeah Yeah. (laughs) all right the the uh you also tackled the mystery genre in the Mm -hmm. sherlock file yes that's so much fun right yes they're middle grade Yes, they're pretty solidly middle grade. Most of my books are kind of on the cusp of middle grade and young adult, mm-hmm. but those those are, are are right smack in the middle in in middle grade as is Maribel. Okay. Now now in um, the first book in that series in the Sherlock Files, that's the hundred year old secret. We we first meet uh, Zena and Xander Holmes. Would you tell us uh, who they are and what they're up to? Sure. Well, Zena and Xander are brother and sister. Uh, 10 and 12 years old, and they are living in London for a year where their father has a visiting professorship. And uh, they are given, in a kind of uh, clandestine way, this notebook that turns out to be their great, 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 now I forget how many greats, grandfather's notebook, and he was Sherlock Holmes. And it's his cold case files. And so they decide they don't really know anyone. They don't have friends. They go to school, but they don't have much to do in this new city. They're going to try to figure out some of these cases that he couldn't crack. And they've inherited his uh, deductive capabilities, but they also have the added benefit mm-hmm. that their mother works for an electronics company testing out new gadgets. And one of the ways she tests them is for durability and lets the kids use them. So they have access to fancy cameras and GPSs and all sorts of things. And so that's how mm-hmm. they're not any smarter than Sherlock was, but they have the added advantage of technology, and they also have access to a lab, So, uh, which they don't use much. I tried to keep it that they mostly use their brains and then just got little boost from these fancy things that they have. And they were a lot of fun to write. Uh, there are four of them, and kids mm-hmm. write to me all the time asking for more, but it's really hard writing a, a detective series with uh, 10- and 12-year-old detectives because there's not a whole lot they can do. They can't really travel by themselves. They can't get into places. So if I were to add some more, they'd, they'd be older. Uh-huh. Or... Um you know, I notice a lot of uh, things like Stranger Things and and Goonies and everything. They said it back in the '80s because kids were allowed to, yeah, go do whatever they wanted. <laughs> well, actually, actually, since it's set in London, that was helpful because kids do ride the 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 tube by themselves mm-hmm. there. Uh, they they seem to have just. I haven't spent much time in London, but from the little time I spent there, they do seem to have less supervision than American kids. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that did make it easier. All right, now your your newest book, Maribel and the Book of Fate. That's mm-hmm. from Little Brown, right? Now that's yeah. a fantasy. 
That is my first pure fantasy. Some of my other books have had fantastical elements in them, but in most of the cases, you're not sure whether the magic really happened or someone imagined it or they dreamed it. But this one is absolutely magical kingdom, dragons, elves, all the stuff. And it was so much fun to write. My last couple of books have been kind of dark, and this one is supposed supposed to be funny. I think it is. I kept cracking up while I was writing it, so at least I had fun. And uh, my point. my editor <laughs> says it's funny too, so I hope okay. it is. <laughs> well, Publishers Weekly said that uh, it's uh, the series opener pits fate against free will, touches on prejudice and patriarchy, and has fun with the, the fairy tale tropes. I I like that. Yes, that's very nice of them. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Yeah, uh, it is. It's it's kind of I I try to take familiar fairy tale kind of cliches and turn them around and for okay. a comedic effect and also to make a point just so you know, not to believe everything away, give us mm-hmm. an overview of and now this is going to be a series right yes it's um the first book in a projected three book fantasy series and okay. maribel is uh she's the princess princess maribel of magicos is the name of the kingdom and she's a courageous heroine although she doesn't know that yet she does not know she's courageous because she's never been tested she doesn't know she's a heroine because there's nothing to be heroic about but she has a, a twin brother named marco and they're very close and their kingdom is ruled by the book of fate which tells everyone important in magicos what their lives hold for them um, everyone assumes that Marco is the chosen one that the Book of Fate talks about, and it's kind of vague that he's supposed to save the kingdom from some unknown peril. But Marco gets kidnapped, and nobody knows what to do and how to get him back because the kidnapping of the chosen one isn't mentioned in the Book of Fate. So the king and, and queen are kind of dithering around, and what should we do? I don't know, and Maribel can't take this, and she decides, I'm going to go rescue him. And... Uh, Nothing really has prepared her for the dangers that she faces because she's just been kind of hanging out being a princess all this time. But she really has to forge her own path for the very first time. And she discovers herself, and she discovers that nothing is really left up to fate. And uh, it's it's a complete fantasy world, but there are some aspects of the kingdom that mirror our own. She's mm-hmm. She's spent years sword fighting in secret because... Uh, girls aren't allowed to, especially princesses, so that's kind of the glass ceiling idea. Uh, the Book of Fate makes you kind of think about the fate versus free will. What what do we have control over? What do we not? Um, it's kind of like social mobility. Uh, your The book tells you what you were born into and what should happen, and it's do you break out? Do you... Do you disappoint your parents, perhaps, by going a different way? What is being true to yourself? So I tried to explore, explore those pretty serious themes in a in a lighthearted way. Okay, so in, in what points do you hope that a, a young reader, either a boy or a girl, will take away from the story? Well, I hope they will. One important thing is that they will look past uh cliche look past oh this is this person is this way because of their family this person is that way because of their economic circumstance this person is that mm-hmm. way because of their disability um the 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 one thing that's really fun about doing fairy tales is that just about everyone who in my target audience is familiar with them so they expect when you see giants 
they're going to be under a threat of being eaten. But no, my giants are vegans. And instead of ah, eating our, okay. our, our heroines, they, they offer them a nice kale and quinoa salad. And, you okay. know, just it just sort of turning things upside down. There's an ogre. Ogres are really the, the, the meanest of the fairy tale critters. And, but my ogre speaks in this courtly kind of Shakespearean way and is very civilized. And, and uh, it's just take your expectations and turn them around. Okay. Now, the book is, when is the book due out? It's next month. It's due okay. out. Yeah, it's due out on February sixth. February sixth. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't had a chance to read it yet. I've I've got it ordered. Okay. But, good. Um, I was fascinated by uh, some things that I've been reading about it, and one is that it says you make several references to modern technology, such mm-hmm. as a video game called Impcraft. Impcraft. Exactly. Okay, and, and there's bracelets a, that accept yes, phone calls. Tell us about that. Right. Well, the bracelet that accepts phone calls has an imp that lives in it named Scary, and you can talk to other people's bracelets through that. She doesn't get it till near the end of the book because if she could communicate with her lost brother, she there would have been no story. Mm-hmm. So, um, unless there was no, no reception. Exact. Well, they do run into that problem. They do run into that problem with the unicorn. The grumpy unicorn Floriano uh, forgot to upgrade his horn. So they have a little problem when he needs to use the horn. The uh, unicorn horns can unlock doors, and they're locked up, and he can't open it because he forgot to uh, do the download. So, yeah, that's that's the problem with technology. Uh, well, okay, Um I was thinking, you know, if you if you could pick any historical character, uh, a, a genuine person, mm-hmm. and send them back one piece of technology to change the world, who would that be, and what would you send? And I, my thought, as an example, was I would send Paul Paul Revere a cell phone, so he could just call it in, and he wouldn't have to and go, you know, and go back to it. <laughs> That, yeah, that would exactly. be that would be great. Wow! So if, if you could pick anybody, what do you think? Well, my first thought would be Leonardo da Vinci because whatever you gave him, he would figure out how to use it and would make it better, and it would be beautiful after he had done so. Good the problem with giving something to Leonardo was the people he worked for wanted him to make these ghastly killing machines. So if you gave him any kind of technology, he'd probably make an atom bomb out of it. Oh, so I, you know, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think we need to do that. Um, I think, I think I, I'm always interested in times in history when people from different cultures meet and they go, wait, wait, wait! I thought these these were not really human. Like when the when the in the Crusades, when the Christians and Muslims met each other, and each side had been told the other side didn't really have souls, and they were filthy, and they were gross, and actually the Europeans kind of were kind of gross. Uh-huh. But, um, uh, to, to just any any kind of communication device, because th- there was so much knowledge lost to the West for so long because they couldn't communicate with the the Arabs who knew stuff, science and math and beautiful poetry and all sorts of things and it's kind of a shame that that they they so wallowed maybe around the Europeans and and uh, the Arabs on Facebook or Kindles with translator translators oh, in them okay okay yeah, something yeah. to translate them <laughs> okay 
Okay, so there's there's you know there's an idea for a book, I guess, somewhere. In there. I'm actually I'm actually working on a Leonardo one, but yeah. Oh, you are. Okay. I am. Okay. Leonardo is time traveler. Ooh, that sounds good. Well, right. how else could he how else could he make a bicycle and a parachute and all that stuff unless he'd Ooh. seen them in the twenty twenty first century and then gone back? Sure. Right. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh-huh. So now we skipped over Impcraft. Tell tell me a little bit about Impcraft. Impcraft. Well, when um, I'm trying to think how to say this without any spoilers. Uh, okay. Uh, Impcraft is uh, a game where the imps actually live in a in the thing that corresponds to a screen, and oh. uh, you can control them to do things and I thought oh that's kind of awful that's almost like they're slaves and I don't you know so I decided to make it that the imps just love playing games and so this is kind of like providing them with an amusement park for them to play with oh, but it's, okay. it's 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 actually a very minor part of the story it's just a diversion at one point but it comes so up again in book two if you want to know anymore yeah wait a couple weeks and then get Maribel and the book okay. of fate yeah Okay, and uh, would you be willing to read uh, a little segment from it for us? Sure, sure. Uh, let me give you a little setup to the part I'm going to read. So um, Maribel has, this is about maybe a quarter of the way through the book, and Maribel has set out from the palace with her best friend Ellie, who's also her maid, and the uh, grumpy unicorn I mentioned named Floriano. Uh, they've had a few setbacks on the trail, but things finally seem to be going their way when they arrive at a river, and luckily there's a bridge across it, but there's a sign hanging above the bridge, and they can't really make out the words in the sign, but when they get closer, they realize, "Uh uh-oh, there's someone uh, sitting under it, and it's a troll. And we all know trolls guard bridges and don't let people cross them. So, uh, let's see. Maribel could make out the sign hanging above the bridge. Stop. Pay troll. A crooked arrow pointed to the left at the words exact change, and another arrow went to the right, where the sign said attendant. The troll was sitting on a stump under the second sign, with his feet propped up on a rock. He was as ugly as trolls were always said to be. See, Maribel's always lived in the palace. She doesn't know from trolls. With wisps of olive green hair scattered over his lumpy head, a warty nose, and tiny eyes. He wore a dark blue shirt and matching trousers, like a uniform. The pants stopped right up below his knees, showing his crooked ankles and bare, bumpy feet. He held something in one knobby hand. He hasn't seen us, Maribel whispered to Ellie. Let's get out of here. Before Ellie could answer, the troll rose to his feet and looked straight at them. Ellie squeaked and buried her face in Maribel's shoulder. Maribel tried to say something, but her mouth just opened and shut silently. Floriano wickered nervously. Oh, hey, the troll said. If this wasn't the last thing Maribel expected a bridge troll to say, it was way down on the list. Why not something more trollish like, who dares try to cross my bridge? She swallowed her terror and said, hey. You can't believe how long I've been waiting for someone to come by. The troll broke out in a brown-toothed grin that didn't much improve his looks. Now pay up. Maribel shook her head. We don't have any gold. The troll's face wrinkled hideously in disappointment. Precious stones? She shook her head again. Silk or velvet? Once again, Maribel had to disappoint him. 
There's just one thing left, then. The troll took a step toward them, and the girls clung together, Floriano trying unsuccessfully to hide behind them. Was the troll going to eat them one at a time or all at once? Maribel wondered in horror. You have to answer three questions, he said. If you do, I'll let you cross. They looked at one another. Let's try, Ellie said. What do we have to lose? If we can't answer him, surely there's another bridge somewhere, maybe one without a troll. All right, Maribel said, and she turned to the troll. We accept. And, of course, the troll went on. If you can't answer, I have to throw you off the bridge. They looked down at the jagged rocks and rushing water and then back at the troll. He shrugged apologetically. Sorry, but those are the rules. He tapped the leather-bound book he was holding. The gold writing on the cover read, Rules and Regulations Governing the Crossing of Bridges, Causeways, Dams, and Dikes, A Practical Guide for the Guardian Troll. Ready for your first question? He asked brightly, as though this was a game. Wait a minute, Maribel said. Just wait. You tricked us. You didn't tell us everything before we agreed, so forget it. No questions, no throwing anybody off any bridge. Come on, Ellie. But the troll let out an angry shout, and immediately their way was blocked by three more trolls, each bigger and uglier than the last. They all wore the same dark blue uniform. That will teach you, said the biggest and ugliest troll, not to agree to anything unless you know what's in the small print, so to speak. Rules are rules. It's a good lesson to learn. Not that they'll get a chance to profit from the lesson, said a scrawny violet troll, and all three burst out laughing. The bridge troll looked embarrassed. Those are my supervisors, he said. The supervisors growled at Maribel and staggered themselves across the bridge. Maribel looked at the trolls and realized that they didn't have any choice except to answer the questions. Maribel straightened and took a deep breath. So, ask us your three questions, she said as bravely as she could. No, the troll said, three questions each. Sorry, Maribel mimicked his gruff tone. That will teach you not to agree to anything unless you know everything about it. You were looking at all of us when you said you have to answer three questions. That means three questions all together. So what's the first one? The troll, looking unhappy, glanced over at his supervisors. The violet one said, She's right, I'm afraid. Rules are rules. Next time, be more careful to say that they each have to answer three questions. But don't worry, they won't be able to. They never can. The bridge troll appeared to cheer up at that. He must have been prepared for this because he didn't hesitate. How many straws go into a bird's nest? What kind of bird, Maribel asked. The troll said, doesn't matter. If it doesn't matter, Maribel thought, then there isn't a real answer. It's a trick question, like a riddle. She closed her eyes and thought. Suddenly, Ellie said, none. None, the troll asked. None. Straws don't have feet. They can't go anywhere. So the answer to how many straws go into a bird's nest or anywhere else is none. The three trolls behind her grunted in what sounded like disagreement, but the bridge troll was fair. All right, he agreed. That wasn't the answer I was looking for, but it makes sense, so I'll allow it. Hmm, now how about this one? How many calves' tails would you need to make a rope long enough to reach the moon? Easy, Floriano said. The girls and the troll looked at him. The unicorn swished his elegant tail. Just one if it's long enough. That's two. Maribel squeezed Ellie's shoulder in delight. Only one more to go. The bridge troll frowned at them, and the other three growled low. You'd better ask a good one, the biggest, ugliest troll warned. If you let your first travelers cross without paying, you'll never get promoted. The trolls took a few steps closer, and Maribel nearly gagged at their musty smell. The bridge troll looked down at his feet and then up at the sky. He tapped his lips with his finger as he thought. We don't have all day, Maribel said to him, and he waved a hand at her to hush. Finally, he brightened. I've got it, he turned to the other trolls. You're going to love this one. Maribel didn't like the sound of that. The troll turned back to them, grinning. What's my name? Stunned, Maribel took a step back. 
His name? How could she possibly know his name? That's not fair, Ellie burst out, but Maribel knew there was no point in objecting. The rules didn't say anything about what kind of question he could ask. The rules, the stupid, stupid, stupid rules. All her life she lived by rules, by the book, by the customs of Magicos. What good were rules anyway? The three trolls moved forward menacingly. The big one licked his lips. And then it hit her. She couldn't believe she hadn't thought of it before. She looked straight at the bridge troll and grinned in triumph. Your name is Paul, she said. The three supervisor trolls burst out laughing. The bridge troll flushed green and snapped. That's not even close. Trolls don't have names like Paul. We have names like Rumbleguts and Goat Eater. Too bad, Maribel said as regally as she could. You said we had to answer three questions. We did, so let us cross. But this bridge troll stammered. You never said we had to answer them correctly. You just said answer them. Rules are rules like you said. Come on, Ellie. Let's go, Floriano. Maribel strode by with her head held high and refused even to look at him. Ellie gave a little whimper as they passed the bridge troll. He looked stunned as he watched them go by. Floriano lifted his legs in a little prance and flicked his tail jauntily. They were no more than halfway across when a great yell made them jump. Ellie glanced back and grabbed Maribel's arm. They're coming after us, she shrieked. But before Maribel could answer, the bridge troll said to his supervisors, You can't pass unless you each answer three questions and answer them correctly. And the thud of big bony trollish feet on the wooden planks was replaced by indignant howls as the trolls argued. Soon they were safely on the other side, and the sounds of the conflict faded, along with the roar of the rushing water. At last, they were on their way to Mab's castle and to Marco. Oh, great. <laughs> that was <laughs> so cool. <laughs> okay, I'm, I am so excited about getting this for my niece. I have a niece oh, who just absolutely loves fantasy. So what are the, what's the age range for this book? Well, the, you know, that's one of those things that the publisher kind of decides and they have said 8 to 12, but I can okay. see, I tried to make it kind of like the old cartoons where there's enough for the adults to enjoy and, and older kids too. Uh-huh. Uh, so older would also work. They'd have to just be old enough to know the standard fairy tale tropes and themes. So they, Because okay. there's really no, not much fun in seeing something made fun of unless you know what's being made fun of. But right. other than that, once they know that, right. I think they're good. Well, thank you so much. We have uh, to take a break now for a moment. Alistair, you have some business you have to do. All right. Um, I just want to take a minute to remind you all that you are listening to Thorn and Cross, Haunted Nights Live. We are host Alistair Cross, Tamara Thorne, and we're here with our young, our special host, young adult host, Akil Pierce. You can learn more about what we do at our websites, alistaircross.com, tamarathorne.com, and qlpierce.com. You can visit the uh, Thorn and Cross Mutual blog at thornandcross.wordpress.com, or if you tweet, you can find us at at crossalister and at tamarathorne. Um, also, you can visit us on Facebook, uh, where we have a Haunted Nights Live page. For more information on the show, you can visit Authors on the Air on Facebook, Twitter, and at authorsontheair.com. If you're listening online, please click the follow button. This is a broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, LLC. That's all. (laughs) So, Tracy, one of my favorite books of yours is A Ghost Story. That was Mm -hmm. published by Henry Holt, Cold in Summer. I know it was an Edgar Award nominee. 
and also New York Public Library's Books for uh, for Teenage Best Fantasy Book of the Year for FOIA, um, Best Children's Books of the Year uh, from Bank Street College, and the Mark Twain Award nominee for um, the Missouri Association of School Librarians. It was very, very, very well received. And in the story, you blend, uh, maybe, it's, it's not exactly certain, uh, History with the Supernatural. Tell us mm-hmm. a little bit about that book and what inspired it. Yeah, well, first of all, let me say that um, after I published Anna of Byzantium, I thought, oh, I'm so great, I can get anything published I want. And that book, and you read off of the list of awards, and it got 24 rejections. So I just Ugh. bring this up a lot to say that di- when people are discouraged about rejections, that didn't mean it was a bad book. It means I hadn't found the right editor because it wouldn't have won all those awards and and, and nice things um, if if it had been a bad mm-hmm. book. So keep on plugging if you're if you're writing is all I can say, and keep on learning about mm-hmm. it. Um, that story came about from. Uh, my, we have a, Tennessee only has one natural lake, and that's in the western part of the state, but there are a lot of uh, lakes throughout the state that were created by dams by, built by the uh, Tennessee Valley Authority and other uh, organizations for power and, <coughs> excuse me, and recreational use, but a lot for power. They have these dams that generate electricity. And my in-laws had a house on one of these lakes, and uh, there was an old man who had lived in the valley before the dam was built and had had to move out, and they had given him a nice big plot of land at the edge, but he really missed his old home, and um, it it really made me feel kind of creepy knowing that there was this, it wasn't really even a town, it was just a bunch of houses buried under all this water. And this old guy told my husband when he was a little boy that there was a hole in the side of the hill that cold air came out of in the summer and warm air came out of in the winter. And that means there's a big cave someplace in there. Mm-hmm. And the because it's it's not that the air is colder or warmer, it's just it's a constant temperature. So when when the when you're standing in the winter and 60 degree air is coming out it feels warm and vice versa in the summer it feels cool. And I started and and one time when I was swimming there a, a piece of a church pew washed up and it just it just felt so kind of icky knowing that what was underneath when you're swimming and I thought boy I sure hope they got everyone out of the cemetery and that led to cold and summer because I thought what if someone was left what if someone was lost (laughs) yeah that's where that Mm -hmm. came from because it was kind of creepy and uh but again I didn't want to make a a spooky kind of ghost I didn't want to go with the cliche so I made a, a sad ghost Right. And mm-hmm. uh, that was, and it was, and it, it paralleled the main character, who has just moved to rural Tennessee from Florida, and misses her old friends and misses her home, and uh, this, and she feels lost and like she doesn't belong. And here's this other girl that she keeps seeing who feels lost and doesn't belong, and they, they kind of have to help each other. Okay, and Tamara, didn't you have an experience with swimming in in a lake uh, or something where there was a drowned town? Oh, my mom did, and I, I based the sorority oh. stories on that. She oh, it was really? Whiskey Town. She moved to Whiskey Town um, as a girl. They lived in, uh, or she lived in Whiskey Town. They moved to French Gulch because they filled it to make Shasta Reservoir. 
And so she had to write her don her her father was a mining engineer and she had to write down and to town and for school. But she went they went there on their honeymoon, my mother and father and uh my mom said that she was so creeped out because she could see the tops of the trees when they went swimming mm-hmm. that my father swam down and touched the church steeple and so so the story goes. But Ooh, yeah, that's the that, kind of thing that, that gives me creeps thinking about it. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, why. I made her tell me that over and over and over. I just loved it. Mm-hmm. And I wrote about it. Yes, I love yeah. it. Oh yeah, that's, <laughs> isn't that funny? How we had the, kind of a similar little impetus for the for the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it really is. You have another new book that's due out in April, mm-hmm. and, and this one is uh, how, this one is a realistic. Um, yes, it's totally different. It was so funny hearing you, you um, Tamara and Alistair, talk earlier about transposing characters to the wrong book. And <laughs> when I was working on, on I was working on both Maribel and the Book of Fate and this other book, Free Fall Summer, simultaneously, and I'd have to stop. You know, I'd get edit notes on Free Fall Summer, so I'd have to stop working on Maribel for a little while and turn to Free Fall Summer, and I'd go, okay, no unicorns. This is 21st century <laughs> Missouri, and this is a girl and a drop, you know, and then I'd have, then, then I'd work on that, and then I'd go back to Maribel and say, okay, no angsty teens in this one. It just, it, it was, it, it, I had to sit and We actually, we, we were writing two things. We're always writing at least two things at once, but we, uh, yeah. we were both, we were both Working on, I don't remember what book, book it was, but we were trying to put the, the, the governess from our gothic novel into the wrong book, and we kept reading. We're like, this just isn't working. Why isn't this? What? And we're like, oh my god, we put her in the wrong book. She doesn't know what she's doing here. No wonder she's not speaking to us. Horrible. <laughs> Although yeah, unicorn, you know, unicorn jumping from an airplane might be actually a pretty good concept. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It'd be better if it was Pegasus, I guess, but still. Yeah, yeah. true. So, so okay, have, story uh, idea. There we go. <laughs> you have jumped from airplanes. You used I to have indeed. Right? I did. Oh. I, um, when I was in grad school, I felt like I was living only in my brain, and I wanted to do something uh involving more than my brain and I had a, a, a skydiving boyfriend and uh, I used to go out and when they were jumping and, and study which it was fine you know I was sitting out there they were all busy doing something and I could study and every once in a while I'd look up and see all these pretty parachutes and I kind of got dared into making a jump so I and this was long before they had tandem uh, jumping so it's the kind where you, you do static line like the you know, you see the the newsreels of the soldiers jumping out of the plane, and they're they're attached to uh-huh. a, a rope that that pulls the the pack open and and lets the the um, uh, the shoot out. Uh, only the planes I was jumping from, you couldn't go bombing out the door because there was a wheel below it, so you had to climb out and hold on. Oh my God! Yeah, I know. I my palms are sweating just remembering it. And I did 17 <laughs> of those jumps. Five, first five were tandem, and after that, I pulled my own ripcord. And then, and um, actually met my husband, not the skydiving boyfriend. We had broken up, but then this six foot seven inch galoot from Tennessee showed up one day at our drop zone, and he was a big famous skydiver, and we were all impressed. And he helped me pack my parachute, and that's how we met. Oh, decades ago. The old pack your parachute. Yeah, I know. It's, it's yeah. not a lame thing. It's a, they do that all the time. And um, then I did I did one more jump uh, when I was writing Free Fall Summer. I did it, I did do a tandem jump because I figured I needed to know what it was like because that's what people do now. 
So and uh-huh. that, was, that was a lot easier. The guy I was attached to must have weighed 300 pounds, and so when he goes, okay, we're going now, I'm like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> like, there's nothing <laughs> I can do about it. So, so it took all the decision-making. Um, experiences that ended up in the book? I mean, yes. was there any? I, okay. I had one very um, uh, in. <laughs> One of these kind of mind-blowing experiences, uh, I was having a hard time pulling the ripcord. And it was all psychological, because if I pulled it when I was standing on the ground, it just popped right out. And But in the air, I was having to use two hands. And, you know, that kind of freaks you out a little bit. There's a, there's mm-hmm. a, a, a reserve in case you get in trouble. But I had um, an experience where I kind of, I didn't really leave my body, but I did feel like I was watching myself and telling myself what to do, and my brain turned off. Everything I didn't need, all sound disappeared, color disappeared, because it's really noisy when you jump. And it was like just constant. There's this thing sparkling on your shoulder, and I watched a hand come in and pull it out, and I was like, whoa, my, you know, who did that? It was really amazing. It was a very comforting thing to know that if I'm freaked out, my brain will take care of me. It was really, I really, (laughs) I'm, you know, it was very profound. That does come in to the story, um, which is based on, it started off being based on the myth of Icarus, you know, the the kid with the wings that are mm-hmm. uh, held together by wax, and his father says, don't fly too close to the sun, but he's a teenager, so he does, and the wax melts, and he falls into the sea and drowns. So it started off being based on that, but it quickly moved away. The only thing really left from that are um, the names. The names echo the myth. Uh, the okay. names of the characters and where they live. But it's a girl who who wants to uh, skydive, and her father won't let her because her mother died skydiving, and he owns a drop zone, so she watches people skydiving all day long. And so she has to – He's very, her father's very overprotective, and so her her boyfriend is too, and she really has to learn to take care of herself is really what it is. Okay. And you wrote that um, during the NaNoWriMo Challenge, right? I did. Yes, the what National Novel like? Writing Month. Yeah, when you were supposed to write, did you really you take a pledge? finish it in in a month? Yeah, but it was terrible, and that's why I wrote okay. it in 2012, and it's being published in 2018. It took that long to straighten okay. the thing out. Um, and you know, I, I really, I've, I've worked on a lot of other. I've worked on that in between other projects, so it's not like I sat down at my desk every day for six years and and, and worked on it. But I'd I'd, I'd pick it up and. Um, develop a character or make a scene better or I changed the ending a couple times uh, and then I'd put it away for six months while I worked on something else so it took a long time to pull together okay now that's coming out from Charles Bridge Teen mm-hmm. Charles Bridge Teen yes in April they just started uh, doing YA very recently this is either their second or third YA list and um, I've had a great experience with them. They, uh, I love. They found a fantastic cover, and the, um, uh, it, it was cover art they found that, that online that that they tweaked and made fit the story. And I mean, the whole thing is. That I've mm-hmm. had a wonderful time writing with them. All right. Now you also teach, right? You, you teach I writing did. for children, and but you're teaching well, um, adults how to write for children. I've, I've done some of both, but I, I'm not really doing that anymore. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, well, let's just. What advice do you have for new writers? Well, uh, boy, so much. Uh, one is 
to recognize that it's a craft like anything else and that you can't just sit down and and do it you have there's a lot of education there's a lot of practice there's a lot of learning and of course there are people who like you know are the mozarts of the writing world who can sit down and write a great book right away but you know the reason we know about mozart is he's so rare and the same with authors who who just really have a something innate in them that enables them to write beautifully on the first try it's extremely rare for most people it's a, a learning process and you learn with every book you write you learn with the ones that you that don't get published at least as much as with the ones that do. Um, anyone that's interested in writing for children or young adults really needs to hop right over to the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators and take advantage of all the educational opportunities and conferences and grants and wonderful things that they do. And uh, I, I hesitate to say believe in yourself and it will come true because some people believe in themselves and it doesn't come true. And then it's like you're blaming the victim and saying... You just didn't believe hard enough, so you're lost. But I think that is important: is to not to to get discouraged too easily. It's it's a tough business, and uh, it takes a lot of perseverance. Like I said, I got 24 rejections on my second novel, and some. If I'd given up at 23, who knows? I might not have written any of the others. It's uh-huh. uh, you have to. Be surrounded by people who get it. There, are, thank goodness, nowadays there. When I was starting out, there was no such thing as Facebook or Twitter or anything, and you really were on your own, except except when you were at conferences and wonderful things like that. But you know, if you you just felt down about it, there was no place to go. And now there are plenty of people who can help you out and give you advice. I found my agent through whining about a bad experience I was having, and someone said, "Oh, it sounds like an experience I had." My agent helped me get through it, and you want her name. I mean, you know, we it's it, mm-hmm. being involved in a community is really important. And you use uh, you take advantage of social media for your mm-hmm. promoting your work, and well, you know, promoting not so much. Like I'm on Twitter, but I most of my followers are other writers. Um, and Facebook, I really don't know who's on my author page, but. Um, yeah, it's that's really more for community. For promotional purposes, I think the jury is still out about how well it works unless you're really into it. I mean, if you're John Green, of course it works. Not that he needs it. But um, uh, I, I think it's it's a matter of what you feel comfortable with. Okay, so what are you What's working on? What's your favorite on? platform? My favorite platform? Oh, sorry, oh. I'm just... Yeah, I'm just curious. I'm just because yeah, oh, I I, I, I really think Facebook. <laughs> I think Facebook, Facebook. I just I just feel too constrained. I just feel irritated with Twitter that I I'm just getting into something and I run out of letters. You know. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, I think that's that and and just various Facebook pages with other authors are very helpful to me. I think. Nice. So. Right. You've got two books coming out in the next mm-hmm. uh, few months. So what's coming yeah. up next? What are you working on? I well, you said um, Leonardo. The, well, that that's very in the just thinking stages. I have well, oh. the second book. The second Maribel book is coming out in another in a year, and that's called Maribel and the Runaway Wish. And uh, it's another journey book, but with a whole different end in mind. Uh, the uh, the mean girl from from book one makes a disastrous wish at the beginning of book two because she loses her temper. And Maribel and this mean girl 
and Ellie and Floriano again have to go and find how to fix it, how to how to get things straight in the kingdom, and also to thwart the evil magician who's trying to take advantage of the chaos that this wish has um, uh, engendered in Magicos. And I just sent another manuscript to my agent that's a historical fiction about a slave girl in Pompeii when Vesuvius erupts. Ah, so, okay. like I said, I'm too interested in too many things to stick to any one <laughs> kind of writing. Now, uh, do you ever write for adults as, as well, have, or do you prefer writing for children? I prefer writing for children. I just, uh, I don't really know why. I have not written for adults, and my natural voice seems to be the tweens. I don't know why. It just, uh-huh. it seems to fit. But you have written a lot of YA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but mostly mm-hmm. younger YA. I write kind of older middle grade and younger YA. It's, it, I think probably only two, well, maybe only one of my books, uh, Dark of the Moon, I would call solidly YA. Well, also uh, Free Fall Summer will be as well. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, it could kind of blur into that in-between age. Well, I'm I am looking forward to everything that's that's coming out, and um, sounds like you're you're really doing a, an amazing body of work. And uh, where can people find you and find your books and? Well, they can find my books all the usual places. I hope they'll go to an independent bookstore. But if they can't or don't want to, there's all the online regular places, Amazon and Barnes & Noble, um, carry everything in, in the world, not just my books, everything in the world. Uh-huh. Um, they, I have a Facebook author page, which is Tracy Barrett, comma, author. And I'm on Twitter as Writing Tracy. Tracy Writer was already taken, so I'm Writing Tracy. Okay. And and my and my without an E, right? T R A. Without an E, just a Y and two right? R's and two T's in the in the Barrett. And I also my um my website is tracybarrett.com. And aside from having a lot of kid friendly stuff, I have a whole page for teachers and librarians with. Uh, quizzes and worksheets and maps and all sorts of fun stuff to do with all my all my different books. Nothing from Maribel yet. I haven't gotten had the time to work on that, but I will. Okay, well, we'll look for it. So, Tracy, thank you so much for for coming mm-hmm. on and talking to us and What um, the time's up already? This has been so much fun. Yeah, I, I feel like it's only I been know, 20 right? minutes. <laughs> so fast. <laughs> That's a good well, thing. Thank you. <laughs> thank yeah. you so thank much. You. This has been great. Glad to have you. All right. And thank you, Q. Thank you also, Tracy, for being on. Mm-hmm. And thank you, Q, for being our guest host. We adore you. And until next week, this is Thorn and Cross Haunted Nights Live, and we wish you uh, haunted nights. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet screams. I forgot, forgot my line. I only have one line. <laughs> Sorry. <go ahead. laughs> and... <laughs> and don't forget to check under the bed before you turn off the light. Especially you, Alice. All right. God. I mean, give me a break. You know? okay. We worked hard today. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
thank you, you, everybody, for listening. Uh, we'll see you next week. Uh, Thanks. Enjoy. Bye. 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 Thank you, Drifty. Nice. Haunted Nights, live with Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross.